Welcome to Fire Recovery. I'm Jordan. I'm Bryce. And uh, this is episode three. And I think we wanted to touch a little bit more on kind of the details of how the course of the four different rehabs came about. And I think four or five different detox um, rounds and detox kind of give a viewpoint of where I was at and where you guys were at during that time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like we've mentioned in a couple other videos, it's been a long stretch of going from wondering whether he was using any sort of drugs to complete chaos with hardcore illicit drug use to entering rehab and you know what the us as parents navigating that and trying to figure out the best way to be a support but also it's a challenge one of the biggest challenges is this how do you help without enabling and there's a lot of things that we learned along the way that i think are, are beneficial yeah um I'm just thinking back on the first time I went to detox. Um, I didn't really think I knew what I was doing was, you know, at this point I'd been on heroin and a lot of oxycodone. And uh, I didn't really think what I was doing was that bad. I knew I was kind of in a bad spot in life, but I didn't associate that with the drugs at all at that time it was more of I was, I was i was in a victim mode and i was you know i felt like everything was going wrong and it was out of my control and i was just getting dealt a bad hand left and right and and the drugs were my escape from it and i had just kind of gotten too heavy into it and needed to just slow it down a little bit like in other words do heroin like a gentleman rather than do like heroin junkie. like a gentleman yeah. <laughs> i've heard that term and i don't know it's crazy to think back now over the that was about two and a half years ago almost to now um you know, all the, the things I've been through, things I've learned and seen. Um, example, this last round in detox in November, um, I was in with a kid that just recently overdosed yesterday. And so it's just been a, a long, a long history or, or journey, I should say, of just watching people die and You've seen you've had a lot of a lot of people you've been through rehab with and close friends that have have overdosed and died over the last few years, haven't you? Yeah, there's been there's been a lot. And that's <clears throat> that's one thing now I kind of find a barrier with being in treatment still. Um I find it hard I find a hard time connecting with like the other people I'm in treatment with to an extent, just because I've seen so many people die and I've gotten really close to some of, some of them. And it's just all of a sudden you wake up and 
and they're dead. And then, you know, a week later, another one dies. A month later, another one dies. Or they're back in jail. Or they're this and that. And that's just how it goes. And it's hard to... It's, it's a hard thing to accept. You become numb to it. Almost. A couple of thoughts that come to my mind as you were talking about that, that there's two real key things that stood out to me during our time of reaching through stuff. We were meeting with a counselor trying to understand the best way to help as there were so many different times where we learned not to give you money because we knew that would go straight to drugs. So then it was, well, you're trying to get to work, so we would just put gas in your car and and because to make sure it wasn't going to drugs, just trying to help you get to work. And, and it just seemed like nothing was helping. And uh, we went to a friend of ours that was a counselor or expert in this. And I'll never forget when he said, he said, let me, let me promise you something right now in 30 years of experience. If you continue to help in any way at all, even giving him gas in the car or anything, 100% guarantee he'll be dead. He said, if you don't give him anything, you cut him off completely, you have a 50% chance that he'll live. So what odds do you want? And that was hard as parents to try to get your head around, thinking, well, how do you just not help at all? I, you know, sometimes you think, well, if he didn't have as much stress, maybe that would help. And, and the other... One of the most prominent memories that stands out is your very first time in rehab. We went to our the first group meeting, and it was a bunch of parents and support people that were there. And as they went around the room introducing themselves, they would talk about, oh, this is our seventh time with the loved one being in rehab. This is our sixth time. This is our fifth time. And this was our first time. We had this vision that the first time would You'd get in there, you'd learn what was wrong and be fixed. And Krista got up and ran out of the room bawling. And I was pretty sure I knew what it was, but I, I left the room to go find out. And she, she was just over in the other room crying. And I asked her, what's wrong? And she said, is this what we have in front of us? Years and years and multiple times. It's not going to be just a one-time deal. And is this just our future? And that was that was really hard for us to understand is you know how do you how do you be there as as they go to rehab how do you help how do you be a support but not an enabler and I don't know that's I, I don't know I don't think I'm asking a question I think I'm just stating out what what was going on in our mind yeah well like the the first thing you said you know talking about how um you know, the percentage of me dying and enabling that stuff. Uh, like even now, like with as many people I've, I've seen die from this and, and how close I've been so many times, like it's hard to still even comprehend that. Like it's, it's just, when you hear that, it's like, oh yeah, you know, 50, it's 50%. But that's true. That's really how it is. Like, <clears throat> I'm extremely lucky to be here today. Um, there's no real reason other than God playing a hand in the fact that I'm still alive today. Because, you know, I was in the worst of it. 
and that's just that's how our minds work like like for example when my really really good friends died last december not this last one but you know a year ago a little over a year ago um he died from you know we both had the same doc at the at the time which was which was fentanyl um we'd gone into rehab the same time this is i think uh rehab number two um gone in there at the same time got sober and we got you know we got really close in the house obviously living together for almost two months and then getting out and you know we did it we did a lot of stuff together we hung out all the time and it was one of those people you click like one of those people you just instantly click with like on another level you know and you know because we were similar in a lot of ways and um I went down to Vegas for an event, and when I got back, as I was pulling up in the driveway, uh, one of our other friends called me and told me he was in the ICU from an overdose, and it just it just came out of nowhere, and uh, you know, and that, and we pretty much had to slowly watch him die over the course of three days. And, seeing his family hang on to a eight percent chance of him pulling out was was rough and you know and that was uh should have what should have been a big reality check for me um i i i had relapsed on alcohol that same weekend before i found out about it but i went back to fentanyl like i don't know not not more than a week after that after his death the same thing that just killed him and that's like that just shows how how difficult it is for the addict brain to comprehend how much not nice i don't know about comprehend but but make it be honest about how dangerous of a situation with themselves they are you know about how dangerous of a situation they're in um Cause I just, I went and did the same thing that he did, you know, shortly after he died from it. And that's, it's just hard to, when you're in that mindset, it's, you know, it's hard to see the, the dangers in things. And you just think that wouldn't happen to you. Okay, you know, often, you know, I talk about the different questions that linger in my mind, and and like I mentioned, Chris and I struggled with uh, how do you how do you help but without enabling? Is there anything as you've been through all this, the four different times in rehab, et cetera? Is there anything you could say to a a, a you know a parent, a support giver of advice on? When they're if they're dealing with someone that's in the throes of addiction, <clears throat> is, is there a balance between help and enable, or is it truly you got to cut them completely off? What's is there any advice that you can think of? Um, I think, in my personal opinion, I I believe, you know, he's right in 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 active addiction. It's you know, it's it's important that you don't 
enable and enabling comes in all kinds of different ways and that's you know money or housing or it wasn't until until i had kind of ran out of my own resources that i wanted to actually do something different and and when life got really real and painful is when i wanted to change because i, I always was able to I don't know. It, it didn't. My consequences didn't seem real or real bad when you had kind of a net, you know, to catch, to catch you to an extent. But on the other hand of that, when you do get sober, there are, you know, there's there's a limit to certain things. But I I, I believe you can be very helpful in getting someone someone's life back on track if they are doing the right thing. But it's just, it's it's a it's a tough question and it's a hard one to answer. I think that was that was always one of the hardest things for us is, and it it created a lot of contention between my wife and me, Krista, because we we knew we wanted to help. We knew we didn't want to enable, but our lines between enabling and helping and everything were were different. We we saw it differently, and and that became very frustrating because it, sometimes you'd feel like you were the being the bad guy, or you're just trying to do this, and uh, you're just trying to give you know just ten bucks so they could eat, and uh, it it just became the circle of trying to figure out where to draw the line and if to draw the line, and yeah, well, and that's. That's really what it comes down to is being able to make the change yourself. And whether that's doing it for you, like they say, you know, because this last time I went into treatment, um, you know, I, I didn't have a whole lot of, you know, when you're doing that type of stuff, you don't have a whole lot of self-worth or self-respect. And like when it gets so bad to a certain point where you just don't care about, you don't care about your life. Um, for example, like the, the one thing keeping me going is, is my four-year-old boy, you know, and he's, he's a catalyst into me changing my life and then, and then me eventually building up some self-worth and some self-respect and getting back into good habits again, but you can still that's like one problem is you can still, you know, the other, the first two times I went into rehab for sure were for, to please other people around me. I didn't, I wasn't uh, necessarily ready to change or I obviously wasn't ready to change because I went back to the same thing. Um, and I, I wasn't sick of my own bullshit. I was sick of everyone being sick of my shit but I wasn't sick of my own shit yet. And so like we can play that game of, you know, acting like, acting like we're making a change, you know, just to get, get that help or to please the people around us, you know, and that, that only lasts so long. Did rehab, it, sometimes there were times I felt like as you said, okay, I'm going to go into rehab, I, I've, I've got to go into rehab this time. It often, I, 
instead of feeling like it was, oh, I'm ready to make a change, I almost felt like sometimes it was your escape from reality of, okay, I can just sit in rehab and don't have to worry about jobs, don't have to worry about anything, and I have my meals and everything, and it wasn't so much I'm ready to change as it was I'm ready to get away from. First time was more of, I didn't, I didn't have really any other option. Um, second time was more along those lines. Um, the third time was I was in the program. I was in, I graduated from residential, was in an outpatient program and relapsed during that. And they sent me back for a short time. Um, and then got out of that. But the, and then the fourth time was, you know, this last time was I, I, I've got to do something different and it, it doesn't have to take you that many times, but you know, it did the, the biggest thing for me to biggest pill for me to swallow was, was, um, humbleness, humility, I should say. And accepting the fact that I had no control over my life and I was terrible at managing it. I didn't want to accept that because it, it seemed like I was, it seemed like a weakness to me to. By saying that you, you couldn't handle it yourself was saying that you were, you were weak. Yeah, it, I seemed it seemed like I was showing weakness by giving up my old way of thinking, saying, "Oh, I've got this handled." For me to be like, for me to try to say, "Hey, maybe somebody else knows a better way." Actually, and I'm going to listen to them and do what they tell me to. Um, that seemed like weakness, and I didn't want to. I didn't like to show weakness, and so. So that seems like that's. Probably, I can see why that would be a significant hurdle because the type of people that go into addiction are people that do things at extremes. They they do really good at things. They're very talented. They they have they always do when they do something they do it a hundred percent. So well, and I can and tell that's, you that. that's riding motorcycles, the art, uh, you know, at. at professional trade i've seen you do all kinds of different professions and and be excellent at everything you do and you were excellent at being an addict well yeah and that's and that right there what i just said until you actually do it you won't realize that it's the most empowering thing you can do for your life I love breaking these things down and and taking each piece. Uh, there's so many different things that we want to break down in these things. I, I do want to end with one thought. I, we didn't talk about this. We've talked about fire recovery for just really quickly as we wrap up this episode. You were pretty adamant about having the fire as part of our thing, and so we've done that. What? Why did you want to have a fire? Um... You know, there's a reason behind why, you know, they have fireside meetings and, um, you know, those types of things. Uh, fire is a part of a lot of different traditions, but mainly it just comes 
my the first thing that came to my my mind with this was you know when i one of my very favorite things is being out hunting and after a long day of hunting sitting by the campfire and just talking like that's where it seems like ideas flow a lot and um there's a different type of different type of uh connection that happens around a, at night around a fireplace in my opinion definitely agree with that well i've i, I think there's like always there's things for us to unpack and each session we're going to try to break down some of the different things that we've learned through the process some of the struggles we had as parents some of the things that jordan's learned through the process that we hope will help each and every one of you and we Thank everyone for participating in our fire recovery and we look forward to more episodes as we talk about the, the steps that we went through over the years. Peace.